With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm Allison Chantel, and this is Success How I Did It. For more than five years, Uber and Lyft have been locked in a battle to become the ultimate ride-hailing service. Uber has been the leader with a war chest of billions of dollars from investors. But it's come under fire recently for how it treats its drivers and even its own employees. Then there's Lyft, which is also worth billions, and one of their biggest advantages seems to be that they have this nice guy reputation. And as they found, it can be really hard for nice guys not to finish last. We had a competitor that was trying to put us out of business with capital. There was a point three years ago where they had 30 times the amount of capital as us. And we're trying to use it to give incentives to, to passengers and drivers such that people weren't using our service. And so it was hard. That's John Zimmer, who's Lyft's co-founder and president. On this episode, Zimmer tells us how he got rich by not caring about money, plus how he survived the early startup years by living on a friend's couch and eating a pile of frozen Trader Joe's meals. He's been thinking about the ride-sharing business since he was in college. And back then, he came up with an idea that sounds a lot like Lyft, but it had a completely ridiculous name. It was called The Waddle. It's really, the waddle? really bad. Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. It's horrible. I and then I you pitch a VC with that name. Yeah, luckily I never did. So I like to start these by getting to know what makes someone tick and getting to know a little bit about their background and growing up. And from what I understand, you were from Greenwich, Connecticut. It's actually one of the wealthiest zip codes in the U.S., I think. So I imagine that shaped your ambition in some ways. But what was growing up like for you? As a kid, I was surrounded by a lot of people who valued material objects. And it wasn't important to my parents, to my family, but there were people that would get excited about the car that they got when they were 16 and it was a ridiculous car or about a watch. And those things never mattered to me. But it was really interesting to grow up in that environment and almost fight those feelings that were kind of being impressioned on kids as important. And so I had to figure out for myself how to define success differently than a lot of the other members of the community who were you know, more interested in material objects. And that took me on a journey over many years. As a kid, I got the most joy when I was with other people, part of a strong community, making people happy. And so one of my first jobs was in a hotel as a phone operator. So at the Hyatt Regency in town, I uh, asked the general manager if I could work there. And you were underage, right? Yeah, he said no. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're too young. And I said, okay, well, can we talk to your lawyers and like figure this out? Uh, because it was like a legal concern. And he was shocked that I was like really pushing and we ended up figuring it out. 
Uh, and he said, fine, kid, you can answer the phone. And he gave me this like really baggy suit because I was really small. Um, and you had to wear this Hyatt suit. Uh, and so I sat uh, out of sight behind the front desk and answered calls from guests in the hotel and people calling uh, from outside as well. And that was another kind of chapter in my love for hospitality and delighting people through great service. Uh, And I ended up going to study at Cornell Hotel School. So that was your first taste of hospitality and you went on to Cornell, but then you took a class that changed what you wanted to do, right? Tell me about this class. Yeah, so my senior year, I took a city planning class in the School of Architecture, Art and Planning. And the class was called Green Cities. And I had this amazing professor. And some of the themes were geography, resources that existed in that geography, and how they moved over time. And he ended the lecture saying, what a really important turning point in world history. Population density is rising rapidly as more and more people move towards cities. Resources are becoming limited in those cities. And the infrastructures that we built were built decades before there were so many people living here. And simply, if we don't fix those infrastructures, we're going to have major economic, environmental, and social problems. And if you don't make this class the most important thing you do this semester, I don't want to teach you. Wow. And then, then he just bailed. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm out. Mic yeah, drop. Yeah, mic drop moment. And then uh, his eighth lecture was on transportation history. And he talked about the evolution in the United States from canals to railroads to highways. And he had these zoomed out images of those infrastructures canal lines, railroad lines, highway lines. And I start thinking, what would be next? What would be that next infrastructure that's going to be built? Because when individuals were building the canals, they weren't thinking, you know, in 100 years, no one's going to care about this and we're going to have something totally different. And so I was trying to figure out what are we missing? We have so many roads, we have 250 million cars. How are we going to completely change our infrastructure? And after thinking about it through the lecture, I couldn't figure out what the next physical infrastructure would be. I couldn't understand how we were going to kind of tear up these roads and change how each of these major U.S. cities uh, would look. If you think about Manhattan or L.A., the majority of those cities are paved over with infrastructure for cars. And then it struck me as a hospitality student, what if we consider the transportation system like a hotel? So I call this transportation hotel, and I ask, what is the occupancy in transportation hotel. And so I started looking at the car itself. And I found out that the car is utilized 4% of the time. It sits idle 96% of the time. And therefore, we built a lot of infrastructure like parking for that 96% of the time that we're not using it. If you do it on a seats basis, it's 1% of the seats are used at any given time. So transportation hotel is horribly run. A hotel with that low occupancy would be done the second it started. And so I wanted to figure out how could you increase occupancy, which in turn would reduce costs for people, because owning and operating a car is the second highest household expense in the United States. It's a symbol of and a reality of economic mobility in our country, because public transportation is fantastic, but it's not available for everyone across the country. And so I wanted to figure out, bring down the cost, increasing the occupancy, and provide better service because in hospitality, occupancy and service are the two main criteria. So this class really gets you thinking, but you don't go and start Lyft right away, right? You actually went into Lehman Brothers. So what happened there? I wanted to understand finance. I wanted to understand why people got so excited about finance. It didn't make sense to me, but also wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I felt that getting some financial 
background would be valuable. And then the goal was to take whatever money I was earning for the two-year analyst program and save it and not spend it. And so I went to uh, Manhattan and worked at Lehman Brothers from 2006 to 2008, which was a very interesting time to be there. In 2007, I was on Facebook one night and Logan Green, my co-founder, who I didn't know at the time, posted on a mutual friend's Facebook page that he was launching a website called Zimride. And what I came to realize is that he named Zimride after a trip he took to Zimbabwe, where he saw people sharing rides out of necessity, which happens in many developing countries. And he had built it himself and was obsessed with providing an alternative to car ownership. And I reached out to our mutual friend and I said, how well do you know Logan and why the hell did he call his company Zimride? Um, it was meant for you. It was bizarre and is way is is better than my Waddle name for sure. <laughs> and uh, Waddle was going to be a car service. It was going to be like a carpooling network, a carpooling community, and that's what Logan was building. And he was tying it to Facebook so that people could establish trust online. And so reached out to the mutual friend. Logan flew to New York, and we we met each other. And this was ten years ago, and we started working together. How does that happen? You find someone who eventually becomes your co-founder who you've never met, you live on opposite coasts. This is like long distance dating to the extreme. Plus, you've got this other full-time, I would assume, demanding job at Lehman. Yeah, I wasn't sleeping much. I I was really excited. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I always wanted to solve something that would have a positive impact on people's lives, would bring people together in the real world. So I was running on adrenaline, I guess, for my second year at Lehman. And, you know, in the first year at Lehman, it was probably their best year ever. And the second year, ended with them going bankrupt three months after I left. But I just was way more passionate about working on Zimride and felt like that was really important to be doing. And so I decided I was going to leave after my two-year analyst program. I was told that I was crazy to leave a short thing like Lehman Brothers for a silly carpool startup. And again, Lehman wasn't around three months later. And then I used Zimride to carpool across the country to meet Logan, and we both moved to Silicon Valley. Wow. And you guys just hit it off and you're like, I could do this with you. This could be great. Yeah. I mean, at that point, it was a side project. And so, you know, it felt like a school project where there was a lot of interest, passion, and we had a big vision, but we didn't know what it was going to be. And so we just wanted to see it work. We wanted to see if we could flip a student population at a university. We were mostly focused on college campuses and make the majority carpool to get home for spring break. That was the main challenge, and that's what we were trying to solve. So we moved to Palo Alto and Menlo Park. For the first three years, we didn't take a salary. and so the, Three years, no salary. Yeah. Good thing you saved, least. Those, saved a lot of money. Yeah, so it was helpful that I'd save some money, and we basically lived in an apartment that was also our office. We called it the Apartfest, and lived off a lot of Trader Joe's microwavable meals, of which I got creative given those cooking classes. And actually, I slept on the couch for at least six months before upgrading to my best friend's parents' house, which was a major upgrade. Got a full bed. And then not until uh, my now wife came out and said, this is ridiculous. Like, we need a little bit of space. So then moved out of that situation. So that's good. You clearly have upgraded much further since then. So talk to me about what Zimride was and how it started and just what was the concept behind it? Because that eventually became Lyft, right? Yeah, so Zimride was long-distance carpooling. So you're coming home from, in my case, upstate New York, and you want to go to New York City. So that's about a four-hour drive. And you're on your dorm hall, and there's one other person that you don't know is also going the same way as you. You guys should be paired up, 
save the cost of, of the gas and split the ride. And some people didn't have access to a car, and so they also wanted a ride. And so we allowed people to basically sell those empty seats in their car. So for 20 or $30, you could sell three seats, let's say make $60 on your ride home, and you'd actually be making some money rather than losing money on all the, the costs associated with driving. We got it to thousands of users and had 150 universities and companies paying us for a closed carpooling network. And then in 2012, Logan and I looked at ourselves and said, how are we doing? It's five years in. We you know, had this dream of starting a business. We've done that. We had raised a couple million dollars, which was fantastic. We uh, had this great team of about 20 people. But the bigger vision, which we've always had, is providing a full alternative to car ownership. Our actual mission is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation and and in doing so, to change our cities so that they're designed around people instead of cars. And we were just scratching the surface. We really didn't feel like we were doing enough. And so we said, what if we were starting Zimride over today? What would it look like? And when we started Zimride in 2007, the smartphones didn't really exist. And one of the biggest problems we had with Zimride was that the frequency of use was a couple times a year because there were these long-distance trips. And so we said, well, what if we could increase the frequency of use? Use a smartphone. At the time, Uber existed, but they were just doing this for black cars and limos. And to us, that wasn't interesting. Right. Uh, they were kind of for the 1%. Yeah, they were for that, that Greenwich population exactly. that I was trying to think differently then. And so I thought, well, getting rides for people that are working at banks, that's definitely not what I, I want to work on, but providing a full alternative to car ownership and allowing people to use their existing car to make money. That was really exciting. And so we, within three weeks, launched what we were about to call Zimride Instant and luckily called Lyft. And that was the beginning of Lyft in the middle of 2012. So three weeks, you guys come up with this new idea. You hit the five-year anniversary of Zimride. Think, what would we do? And you're right. Like cell phones, when you started Zimride in 2007, people forget the first iPhone came out in 2007. So it really was not an option. And quickly by 2012, it's everywhere and everyone's got one. Yep. So three weeks from concept to a live app. Is that what you guys did? Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, two incredible engineers that built the app in three weeks. We had... An intern who named it, right? Intern, yeah, Harrison, who's still here. Uh, who, he's still at Lyft, that's yeah, right. Yeah, he's on the design team, and he helped come up with the name Lyft, as well as the logo. And so it was a pretty exciting three weeks that we went from start to actually having a ride with drivers that uh, we did background checks for and driving record checks of. And we'd met in person and kind of talked to them about the culture we wanted to create with Lyft. And then it's been crazy since then. So you launched this and you mentioned you had seen Uber was out there. Do you remember the first time you saw Uber and it resonated? Not really. Again, like the image, the tagline at the time of you know, everyone's private driver, that didn't really resonate with me. That's not something we wanted to create. Uh, Lyft's tagline was your friend with a car, and the goal was to provide an alternative to car ownership. And so we felt like it was very, very different. Yeah. And, I mean, eventually Uber did launch UberX, which is kind of exactly what you guys were doing at Lyft. Was that a hard moment? I'm sure it's frustrating sometimes for you whenever people talk about Lyft, Uber is not far from a next sentence. What is the competition 
of Uber been like? Like, do you think that having a worthy opponent has made Lyft even more successful? Or how did you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if we consider ourselves still entrepreneurs that are learning, having a formidable competitor has been great training and has brought Logan, myself, and the team closer together and rallied around our values. And I think what sometimes people miss when they're in an area like Silicon Valley or building a business is like you can get really caught up in winning. And winning is awesome. We're incredibly competitive. We expect to win. We like winning. But why is really, really important. And we want to win because we believe that the set of values that we hold and the way we envision our cities designed around people is so important to the future of our society, you know, where my kids will live, that that's why we want to win. Because we're not certain if someone else helps build cities of the future that they're going to be built in a way conducive to human interaction. And so that's what drives us. And we've only gotten more and more firm in our set of beliefs and in the necessity in our belief to win to make sure that happens. There's a lot of things that I'm sure were extremely hard on getting lift off the ground. First off, the business model itself, you have multiple customers. You've got the drivers you have to keep happy and mm-hmm. you have the customers you need to keep happy. So that's one challenge. How did you learn to balance that and figure that out? Yeah, well, it's very related. In hospitality, if you use the Lyft example, drivers are critical to everything. If we don't take care of drivers, then passengers don't get taken care of. And so by treating drivers better than any other company, we're going to create the best experience for our passenger. So in that case, it's connected, and and we always thought of it as really simple. We should be nice to drivers. We should do our best to take care of drivers because that's also going to be great for passengers. So for us, that that was always straightforward. But it's easier said than done because customers want cheaper prices. Drivers obviously want to make more money. So how did you figure out the pricing structure that would work? Like as you're putting this together, like how has it changed and evolved and what have you learned? Because it is very hard to keep two separate entities happy. Yeah, that's that's right. That's definitely fair. It's a balancing act. So this is a marketplace with two sides. We had to kind of try our way into it. You know, in the early days, a product like this didn't exist. And so we had to look at alternatives. So from the passenger perspective, they're thinking about, well, what is my other alternative? Often at the time, it was a taxi or a cab alternative. Because the first use case people were using Lyft for was a night out or I'm going to have a drink, I don't want to drive type situation. Longer term with things like Lyft line and and where prices are now, I think it can take over more use cases than just that first one. But it's really just through trial and understanding what passengers are willing to pay and how we can get drivers as much of that as possible while moving the business towards profitability. And another challenge has been a lot of regulators. It's a very messy business. It sounds like a great idea in theory. Like I'm going to just fill cars that aren't being used with people who want to use them at any given moment. Yeah. It's obviously why consumers would want it. But regulators were resistant for a while and at times since you cease and desist and it's been extremely challenging, especially in every city you launch in, it's different. A lot of people that would just be like, well, it's not possible. It's not doable. There's too many things in the way. Why did you keep going anyways, and how did you get it done? We kept going because we really believed in our mission. And when I think about all the moments that were the hardest, how close we were to failure along the way, it was really this, like, we really believe 
in the need for making our cities better and designed around people. And we received cease and desist within, I think, like two months of launching. And our first thought was, oh, let's go talk to them and let's explain what we're doing. We'd already done the legal analysis, which made us believe that we were in the clear because this was different than anything that had done before. But we weren't unaware of the fact that this was very new culturally to be riding in other people's cars. And so we sat down with the regulators, in this case, the California Public Utilities Commission, and said, what are you most concerned about? Why did you send us the cease and desist? Is it public safety or is it to protect against existing industries? And they said, it's safety, of course. And we said, great. And we had this document prepared that walked through all of the safety uh, things that we did, including a criminal background check, a driving record check, a million-dollar insurance liability policy to cover each driver. And then we said, and here's what you require of the entities you regulate. They regulate the black cars and limos in California. And almost everything was more significant than what they were requiring. For example, they require $750,000, I think, to this day, instead of a million dollars for black cars and limos. They do not require a criminal background check for black cars and limos, which is shocking. And so that led to about a year of back and forth to the point where they did create the new category and regulated using that kind of model for safety. Was that one of those near-death moments? Did you guys ever think, like, wow, he told us to still stop? Like, there's just no way forward? I mean, how... How close were you to throwing in the towel at any given time? I think there were moments where we were close and that would have really, I think, prevented the whole industry from growing in the United States. But again, we felt like we were on the right side of history here. We felt like safety was the most important thing and that we were being responsible around that. And so we fought through it. But sure, we doubted ourselves throughout I don't know that we would have thrown in the towel unless they were to lock us up or something, <laughs> or if there was a moment where there was like a decision point and it was a, a vote at the CPUC, the Public Utilities Commission. I remember we went to the commission meeting where they voted on uh, whether or not to pass these positive regulations for this new industry. And we had invited the driver community and passenger community and the room was filled. And I believe it was a unanimous decision. I'm not 100% sure. But after the vote, a lot of people stood up and cheered. And the commissioner said, that's never happened before. Um, and it was a really exciting moment because we weren't certain of that outcome. So that's a huge win. And now you all are in how many cities? Uh, so we cover 94% of the U.S. population, meaning 94% of the U.S. population can get a ride, well over 300 cities. And how did you devise a playbook for launching in each city? When Lyft is going to go into a new market, what do you do? Yeah, so it's changed uh, over the years. So in the early days, we had a launch team that would drop down and recruit driver mentors, which were drivers that had the highest ratings. And then the mentors would train the next set of drivers. And it was a way for us to pass on the set of cultural values we had and the hospitality from driver to driver. And it's evolved such that we can now have 94% coverage. And in our top 20 markets, we have local teams, general managers, and they manage a expanding region. You've scaled tremendously. I mean, if you had to give a couple of tips for like how you scale and how you create mass consumer interest, what do you think were the biggest things? I think it's been really helpful to be close to our product. So one, Logan and I drive. That's really important. Um, when you say you drive, you actually do Lyft driving. 
Yeah. So every New Year's I drive. It's one of the times where drivers are making a sacrifice from being with their family and helping people that have had a lot to drink get safe rides. And so it's been important to me that I do that every year and also more recently have committed to driving every month. That's really, really important. So be close to the experience and to the people that are driving your business. And then obviously using it daily on the passenger side has been really helpful. Those are some of the main things. I think it's a tough balance between expand quickly and don't expand too quickly. And so sometimes some of the best decisions we made were to say no. So whether that was international expansion or, you know, we learned sometimes we expanded too quickly in the U.S. and sometimes we had to to redo it in in a better way. But it's just finding that right balance of speed. So you've raised a lot of money for Lyft. I think definitely over $2 billion valuation of $7.5 billion is lots of checked. So as someone who's raised a billion-dollar round, what are your tips for fundraising, navigating VCs? Was it ever hard to do in the fundraising process of Lyft? It was absolutely hard to do. You know, we had a competitor that was trying to put us out of business with capital, and that was larger than us. And a lot of investors were asking. And how were they doing that? Just like, we're going to outraise Lyft? And... Yeah, there was a point three years ago where they had 30 times the amount of capital as us. That's insane. And we're trying to use it to give incentives to, to passengers and drivers such that people weren't using our service. And so it was hard. But honestly, the best advice I can give to other entrepreneurs is to like work on what you're passionate about. If you're working on something just to win, or working on something just to make money, in all those tough moments, like raising around when your competitor is trying to put you out of business with 30 times the amount of capital, it's not going to be a genuine pitch. It's going to be hard to overcome those moments. But when you care about the work so much, investors can see that. And we had to articulate how we were going to get to where we are today. And we found enough people that believed us. So... You guys have grown the company tremendously. It's been honestly not that long, 2012 to now, five years, you guys have been in business. But everybody says Lyft and Uber, not too distant sentences. Um, You've always had a competitive environment. I know you and Travis have had your moments as well. And the personalities of the brands are just completely different, it seems as well. You walk into your office, very happy, pleasant place, and everyone seems nice and genuine. How can you win in business and be nice. Do you think that that hurt you ever? I don't. And I think it's strange that it's become a thing because treating people well is great for business. It is complementary to doing well in business. But there's been this story told of founders who are just not nice to people and that's what it takes to get ahead. And that's just not true. I mean, all the way back to Steve Jobs, he's a good example of someone who was cursing out people in some rooms and then also changing the world. Yeah, I never met Steve Jobs, and I've heard both sides of that story. What I do know is that most businesses require other people to help you get where you need to go, whether that's our employees, which we call team members, whether that's, in our case, the drivers or customers, passengers that are using the service. Great service, great hospitality, treating people well, having a good set of values, That is great for business. And we are out to prove that along with uh, the mission we have to make our cities better. And if someone is just graduating Cornell now and wants to create the next billion-dollar multi-unicorn company, what's your advice to them? I wouldn't focus on the billion dollars or the term unicorn. I would focus on why 
why do you want to do this? What do you actually want to do? What are you passionate about? What do you think needs to be better in the world? There's a lot of things that need improvement. And that can be in the business arena. That can be in other arenas. But certainly in the business arena, there are big opportunities. And we got to focus our business success and metrics around the impact they're having in the real world. And so I would push the next set of entrepreneurs to do that. Isn't it a little bit ironic that you started out by saying what you didn't like about Greenwich was the materialism, and now you could probably go buy the biggest house in Greenwich if you wanted to? But I don't want to. (laughs) Well, there you go. Well, thanks. Congrats on all of your success for Lyft, and uh, hopefully this inspires other people to create the next big thing. Thanks. We'd love to hear what you think of Success How I Did It. Please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out. I'm Allison Chantel, and we're back with more success next week.